Hello, welcome to this special episode of the Warfighter podcast, the pre-ITSEC extravaganza. I am Tom Cosville and this is Colin Hillier. Hello. Uh, hello, Tom. And uh, our audience need to be reminded that you are slightly killing yourself getting this extra episode done before <laughs> a deadline I, while you're on death's door. Part of me thinks that I just should go scan through the legacy episodes where I've talked about either having man flu or a cold. I reckon it's probably a good 40%, so I'm trying not to <laughs> bring my lurgy onto the airwaves. But yes, I am. I am and listeners will realise that the interview that we have, which we'll talk about in a second, I'm not quite as vocal as I normally am, which probably, so some people, is a blessing. <laughs> but I've been trying to avoid that. So, Colin, a special episode. So what can the listeners expect to hear? And who is actually enabling this well, episode? Uh, in reverse order, uh, <laughs> we have Andy Fawkes and Marty Kowchak from MS&T magazine giving us a bit of a heads up of what to expect next week at IATSEC. So it's something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. But before that, we are very privileged for this special episode to have Royal O'Brien, who I think if you were to use the term titan of industry, that wouldn't be an overstatement in this case. If you look at what he's been involved in, certainly on the games industry side and sort of large scale, we call it simulation, they call it gaming. He seems to have been involved in most of the projects of any note and with some of the major companies. So I think we're re- really excited to dig into it. We can't do it justice in 40 minutes, but you know, we did give them a challenge, didn't we? Yeah, and they, they picked it up and ran with it. Because I think it's, it's a very valid point. The question is, is the metaverse dead or is the military metaverse dead probably more relevant to us and being a veteran himself royal uh, he he took that question and ran with it and i don't want to go into too much detail i think we cover it really nicely in the interview but he does provide evidence-based or at least experience-based answers to it which i really appreciated well we'll leave it for the listeners to listen we won't take any of the thunder now but here he is it is with great pleasure that I'd like to welcome Royal O'Brien to the show. Hello. Hey there. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, we, we appreciate you giving us your time. I know it's uh, it's a busy time over at Hadian, and we will try to do this at lastminute.com as well to make it as relevant as possible to our listeners for iitsec. So uh, this is great and an awesome topic. Before we go into you and your background, I'm really happy that Hadian's willing to pick up this. I wouldn't want to call it clickbaity title, but a title that is a lot of people are thinking, which is around, is the military metaverse dead? We haven't heard a lot about it recently and based on the hype from last year. So I'm very excited to kind of hear your thoughts on that and kind of where Hades sees the future going. Before we get into that, because I'm, I'm, I can see you're raring to go on that topic, uh, please, for the listeners, could you just introduce yourself, give us your background and how you'll find yourself as a CTO over at Hadian? Sure. So uh, again, my name is Royal O'Brien. I'm the global CTO over at Hadian. Uh, a little bit about my background. Started out early in my career working on computers since I was very young as a software developer and hardware engineer. I spent a lot of time growing up doing that. It was a thing that interested me. While going into the Marine Corps during the first Gulf War, I served during that time. Got out, had a little fun uh, in my 20s, understanding that I wanted to, which uh, it was a great time, but learned a lot of things about what I needed to do in life coming out of the Marine Corps, how I needed to be disciplined. There were a lot of things that I got from that environment that helped set up my career for the rest of my life and how I was going to accomplish it. From there, basically uh, built and exited from four different companies, built a lot of intellectual property, patents, and elements over the course of 20 years. Spent some time at Amazon working as their uh, chief evangelist uh, and helped build the game tech business unit over there from the ground up. And uh, also worked with them where they had a uh, 3D engine. I took that as a single-threaded owner, and I took the entire code base they spent quite a few years building and moved it into open source uh, with the Linux Foundation. I spent some time with the Linux Foundation, 
as uh, as the general manager of digital media and games, uh, built the Open 3D Foundation and the Open Metaverse Foundation. So when you start talking about metaverse, I've got a little bit of a background there. And fortunately, as a software developer that has worked in the games industry for over 20 years, uh, I definitely understand the different facets because we've been building scale. We've been building for large audiences for a very long time. So instead of that fuzzy response that you hear in back of my head, I know, well, these are the things you actually need to pull it off. And these are kind of the elements. So you know, that background of technical prowess that I've been able to learn over the years from a lot of different organizations in my experience, as well as the business of market fit, marketing, dollars, how does this come to reality have been the culmination. And when I saw what Hadian had, uh, I took the opportunity to dig in a little bit. And they had one of the core elements that I felt was necessary, which is the ability to bring an assembly of a lot of different people, entities, objects, into one collective theater and simulate that all at one time because you can't just say well it's a metaverse and i have 50 people because that's not much of a collection of people so by them being able to solve it for hundreds of thousands to millions i saw there's a critical point the software was in the right place and so i thought this is a good place to go so that's kind of my background and you fulfill the criteria that we always ask which is we really want to talk to people who've done it and so that's definitely the case and there's always more illuminating and i think even at the last season we haven't addressed the metaverse question head on maybe that's probably waiting for the right people to talk to or trying to understand what we're talking about but if you're a casual observer you'd probably be forgiven for thinking that the metaverse is kind of dead that was very much a 2022 thing you know clearly that probably isn't your view no, it's not. So, I mean, really, the metaverse is kind of in a, in a winter right now. If you take a look at a lot of technologies, you'll find out that it takes different groups and organizations to start building the underlying technology, the underlying standards, all of the different elements to bring it to fruition. The metaverse isn't just where I go out and build this 3D environment and then poof, I have a metaverse. That's not the case. People ask, what is the definition of the metaverse? You know, when they ask me that question and I say, well, Metaverse is actually a pretty simple concept that, you know, it is an immersive type of experience where it could be VR, it can be AR, it can be 3D, it's on your screen. There's a lot of elements to it, but the number one requirement is that it is the connection of these experiences from one organization to another that have no alignment, no interest, aren't owned by each other, don't have disparate technologies um, that allow me to go from one another. So when I'm on the web, we have the internet and the World Wide Web. I can jump from Microsoft to Apple to Google to Amazon. They have nothing to do with each other. They're competitors. But nonetheless, they form our World Wide Web of what we use on the internet. So take that into the perspective of a metaverse where we have these immersive 3D experiences. We don't have the ability to jump from one to another. So we have a lot of work, and that's the work that's being done right now helping come across those standards. We have things like HTML. We have GIFs. We have JPEGs. We have PNGs. These are all the building blocks that we use that allow us to jump from site to site, page to page. It just doesn't exist in a meaningful way to form a metaverse across organizations. So there's a lot of work. And then the other part is, of course, you have what we use like an Apache server that we use that hosts those web pages. We don't really have that. And I see Hadian and the technology they have for that platform as being like that Apache server. The ability to have a lot of people come together in a theater Regardless of how you want to apply it, whether it's military, whether it's civilian, we still use the same servers to accomplish the same task. So no, I don't believe it's dead. It's in more of a winter, building winter. Well, as we say, the, the Monty Python, it's just resting. Yes, that's just rest. Okay, so that actually has really helped me understand what the metaverse is and what, how I can relate it to a kind of a civilian metaverse in terms of the analogy with the website connecting Google, Amazon, etc. 
when it comes to a military metaverse, is that the same thing? Is it different? Can you paint a picture for me what you see the military metaverse being? So military metaverse, if you look at it from perspective of what they're trying to accomplish, which is each one of the different branches, each one of the different services, they're producing data and they're producing simulations to match what they need. So you have ones that say for the Navy, for the Army, for the Marine Corps, Air Force, all the different branches around the world. But again, they don't share. They're not sharing the data. So a military metaverse is where we're able to get the simulations that each one of them are building and allow them to be able to share within the theater, to be able to move from one to another. That means migrating of data, users, environments. And as that continues to become shared, they don't have to be actually integrated into each other necessarily to be able to share. And that kind of collaboration is a key element to a military metaverse of what you want to do. So if the Navy, or say, let's just say the Royal Air Force is amazing at doing aircraft simulation, but the Navy is not, you would prefer in your theater when you need to bring aircraft simulation into your naval simulation that you're using the expert of that. And a military metaverse can enable and empower that environment. Just to follow on with that question, and this may be a naive question here, but we were using, when I was building my simulation, we had DIS and HLA, so communication languages that on some level allowed disparate simulators to teach, speak to each other. So could you explain to me kind of the value add or the force multiplier that the Cadian technology brings beyond the pre-existing standardized languages? Well, so those are communication protocols. Those are how you actually can traverse the data back and forth between two systems, but that doesn't mean you're actually simulating it. And so the result is that your software that is publishing or subscribing on that DSL-HLA type of payload, they're going to be responsible for also simulating all of that information. And their simulation is probably built for a particular vertical, whereas Hadian is neutral to the data. And so it allows data to be brought into the theater in large scale from all of these different sources. And it allows them to then simulate, interact, and then go back out. The difference is in this publish and subscribe model, is that I can have my naval simulation, which is immaculate at doing naval simulation, publish and subscribe data into Hadian. I can have the Air Force. I can have troop movement, vehicle movement. I can build all the elements in theater along with social media, perception, and all of these pieces with geography, and then simulate them in a theater. So it is the glue that actually allows all of these to be in the same theater and in the same environment at one moment in time and the other parts are that they don't actually have to be in the same format. They don't have to be synchronous. Perfect example, your aircraft, that is a fast moving vehicle. You're probably going to want to do at least 60 updates a second so that it's accurately shown in the simulation. Troop movements, you probably don't need 60 updates a second. You could probably get away with five or 10 without moving quickly enough. So now you have different update rates, different format of data, but the world environment still simulates the same. And the other part is that these data payloads, if they're actually coming from a live engagement, a live environment, they will be unreliable. So that means that you've got to be able to work within these where you have unreliable, all of them not in the same format, with different simulation systems that have to be brought together in one theater, simulated together so that they can react and produce something that then you can feed to another system that may be AI or visualizer so that people can actually make decisions. And that's a key element of what Hadian does. So think about all of your different systems that are producing that HLA and disk format data. Imagine them having to do the simulation of millions or hundreds of thousands of entities in their environment. They're not built to do that. Do you think that there'll be a next-gen standard to support this, or are you talking about using existing standards and building on them? What's your view on that? So 
If you take a look at what traditionally is done in the military, they like to use what's already been built and then be able to bring it forward. So if you try to say, well, we're going to build a whole new standard, that's going to be problematic because you're not going to get a lot of sign off. They need to be able to use the technologies they've already built and be able to have them. And that's the reason why ADN is a key element here, because it's neutral in the format. The bridges can be written into the system where they can publish and subscribe in that model that matches what your legacy simulation was. So it allows you to not only use what you've already built and spent a lot of money on, but bring that up and continuously update what your environment is without having to actually shut everything down or rewrite everything. So starting over from scratch, new, new standard, you can incorporate that as where people should and would go, but you've got to be able to account for what's been spent in the past. We've covered in the past about HLA and how actually it's, you know, by its name is about architecture. So it's not actually even telling you what you can write your own instruction set within that stuff. I don't understand. But when we look at this also, I guess the main characteristic of modern simulations is huge amounts of data. And it seems like we're quite bad at being good custodians of data. So we do a lot of rework, duplication. Sometimes you think if we just didn't have to remake that model every time, that would be great. But we still do. I mean, can you add to that? What are our strategies for the data? So if you take a look at it, that structure you're talking about building a data leak and then trying to operate out of a data leak. And so Hadean kind of flips that on its head where Hadean in the simulation kind of is the data leak. So in other words, you've been trying to structure data so that you can pull it out, process it and stuff it back in. But the reality is that it's operating the theater in a data lake and then replicating back out. So you might have somebody like Snowflake who, you know, they're fantastic with doing data lakes and data. But when we're talking about trying to interact all that data within a central environment, that becomes very difficult. But if you flip it on its head, that means that the management of the data of how it's operating in the simulation is being done by Hadian. And then it's pushed over to the data lake for update intervals. So that allows you to ensure that you've got the reliability but you're not having to manage, micromanage the format of what's going in over to your data lake. So as long as the formats themselves are meaningful, can represent the data accurately, then you're fine. Because there are some formats that are completely abstract. I mean, think about when you're talking about, like, you have an event going on, you're trying to create, a, uh, there's an evacuation. You can track the coordinates of where people are on the map. You can track the vehicles. You can track everything and the events of what are going on. But that's pretty reliable data, 32-bit values, 64-bit values, floats, things like that. But then when we start talking about sentiment and Twitter feeds, well, that's abstract text. And I have to be able to analyze what people are saying. I've got to determine the sentiment of how people are feeling, where it's going on, where they made it. So that's a completely different structure. That's a different format that's really kind of unstructured that I'll be using AI. And why is that important? Because if I'm doing an evacuation and somebody's moving a bunch of people out and somebody in the civilian public gets, gets hurt or a bomb goes off or something happens, well, all of a sudden Twitter starts blowing up or the, the local social media, you can change that sentiment from fear to aggression and the population can turn on those that are trying to get them out or brought them in. So think about the structure of your data that you have to deal with that kind of environment by being able to do that in a theater environment versus a static data leak. You mentioned it before I could get there, but so thank you. I think large-scale simulations today are very much a mechanical Turk, right? Yes, there's a digital environment and, and a landscape and there's a degree of autonomy, but actually behind it is a bunch of wires with people at the end making stuff happen. And if you extrapolate that out and say, right, we want to run these more frequently with more people, you don't have enough mechanical turk. You're right. going to run out of the humans behind the scenes pulling all the wires. So mm -hmm. what do you have to do? You have to develop some sort of semi-autonomous. I think simulations use autonomous forces 
quite flippantly over the years. Well, They're actually sort of procedural. They're logical things, aren't they? Follow a path. They're logical to a degree. You have to, one of the things you want to think about is that a key element of what's used inside of a hating, where people tend to use it the most, is a pattern of life. So when you look at a pattern of life, it's not where I apply one logical thing. Like if you're a human, you do these certain elements. Pattern of life allows you to tap down a little bit further. I'm a business person. I leave at eight o'clock. I come home at six o'clock. I travel these roads and these pathways. And these are things that I do. When you can establish pattern of life, male, female, age, different backgrounds and what they're doing, and you could actually analyze this data, say you recorded a couple of weeks of video of a city and where people go, what they do, and you begin building that pattern of life of each one, then you can start using that response so that when something does happen, how will they respond? What is their action? Are they going to collect around it? Are they going to run away? And so the trick here isn't how do I simulate everything inside of one central core? It's how do I distribute the simulation to all of the different applications that are made to do that, but have the applicability of a pattern of life to alter the behavior based upon what these external simulators are. So I could have 10 different cloud instances or multi-server type environments doing simulation of vehicles, troops of different elements. And then I can have the pattern of life that's working within Hadian that says, this is how people will react. These how certain things will react as a pattern of life. So it's somewhat mechanical, procedural, but when you're talking about core logic versus AI influenced, well, now you're talking about what we perceive as chaos, but is nothing more than the culmination of a lot of events that have particular personalities and patterns that are occurring in the same environment. And so a lot of the work that Tadian have been working on is the spatial computing side. Can you just talk about that and the impact of the latest generation of AI on that. And I confess this is an area I don't understand, so please keep it simple. Yeah, to start, to start with what is spatial computing, we could kind of move from there, yes, I think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, spatial computing is basically where you're able to take a specific area and it doesn't, it can be as big as you want or as small as you want. It's being able to understand how to process events, actions, and objects within those environments, within those areas. So spatially distance between when something happens, you know, it's where an event, a car crash happens. Spatially computing, everything around that, that reacted to that. If it's a mile away, you're not going to have a lot of reaction that goes there. I don't need to compute that because it's not really an impactful result of it. So you have to understand that it is the, the ability to kind of partition off. And when I say partition, it doesn't just have to be space. It can also be by what type of element, uh, what type of object is it? How do things react that are different? Is it human? Is it car? Is it? So you have basically uh, within the area and then you also have the type of entity that gets computed on based upon what's actually occurring that would react or affect it. Because if you just tried to do it across the board, the amount of compute would be completely unnecessary. You'd be hitting things that would have no impact or meaningless impact, and it just simply doesn't scale the same way. So I can have a lot of events going off uh, at the same time in a spatial environment and still scale it accordingly. Think about it from the perspective that if you watch video, when we encode video, uh, we watch this, you'll notice that sometimes it'll screw up and all of a sudden things kind of sludge around. Those are actually sprites. It's able to record sections of that video and just the changes in that video and moving that around. Uh, but that's actually a spatial computation done in the frame that says, I don't need to record the entire video of every single thing. I'm going to focus on these things that move around and I'm going to do the changes between them. So Consider that I could have 10 different areas all being computed at the same time, but they may only make up 30% of the total spatial environment. It's a fascinating time at the moment because we've gone from, well, just over a year from, I guess, generative AI being at the forefront of people's minds. People actually start 
no, this is not new. People have been thinking about this for a while, but it's in the public's perception to actually in the last few days where we don't even know if OpenAI might exist in 10 days. It might be a te- you know, the team are all sort of resigning. And so huge flux. And you, you get this in all technologies, don't you? As they, as they sort of get to a climax, there's huge flux, like the railways, right? Most of the railways that were started don't exist today, but there's a few that do. And you see that all through certainly the, the early days of the internet. Well, how do you see this impact of effectively off-the-shelf AI? Um, how do we make sense of it? How do we use it in, in this context? I mean, if you take a look at what's going on, you have all the big players that are making sure that there's no vacuum and they're scooping all of that up. So, you know, is it going to be that open AI goes, goes away and that we all have a problem? No, we're going to see 50 new services from five different companies and we'll see some startups. The fortunate with AI is that storage is getting cheaper, compute is getting easier, and you can find funding because it's still a hot topic and it's going to be for quite some time. It's a matter of how you wield that. You know, it's not like uh, you have mid-journey, you have, there's there's so many of them that are out there now. And it's a matter of what's being done, how it's being done, uh, that meets a particular vertical. So, you know, are we going to have something happens to open AI? Are we going to have a, a big vacuum? Uh, trust me, it'll get filled quickly. And you'll see the open source community will also push to kind of drive a shared environment, I guarantee you'll probably see something come up out of that as well, because that's just a part of how it's always evolved. I mean, it's not like, you know, at one point we used to have DBase, right? And I'm going back in time by quite a bit. Then we SQL Server and, you know, Oracle and all, but now you've got things like, you know, MySQL that are both open source and community driven. And you've got, you know, different databases and different things. So don't think that just because one technology didn't survive a generation that it's dead, somebody will fill the, fill the void when there is a need. And on the sort of security and ethics side of this, I guess I, I struggle with the use cases that describe it well, but oh, what the things yes. you would be aware of. So these things are always double-edged swords, aren't they? They've got great potential. Oh, when I was building the uh, Mever Foundation, ethics and those things were a big, big concern. And here's why. Because take into account that you can have an AI-driven NPC, non-player character. So I am in this environment, uh, I'm interacting with others, but do I know that it's someone else? Can I make an AI that is able to simulate and act like a human as close as possible? I already know I can have a conversation. I've already seen AI where they've had it do a task where it talks to a bank agent and got them to convince to drop like a hundred and some dollars in late bank fees. And they had AI purely do the whole conversation to convince them. Um, this was like maybe a year and a half ago, I think. Uh, it was really cool. But my point is that that bridging between what we think is another person and what is a simulation or AI is part of the problem. And I'm just giving you one example because you said, where can you apply it? Because I can also listen to all the conversations. I can look at all the chat. I can determine the sentiment if you are feeling good or you're feeling bad or if you're feeling depressed. And I could be a sick individual who decides I'm going to write a bot that preys upon people that have depression and convince them to commit suicide. Well, there's an ethics play right there of how do you prevent people or kids, teenagers, from being pursued by AI agents that act like humans and convince them to do things they otherwise shouldn't? Because if I can spend an hour convincing a bank teller to drop some finance charges, it's not going to be hard for me to pursue somebody who already has an issue or to sway them in my direction, politically, ethically, mentally. So there are some serious, serious ramifications. And that's just interaction. I even talked about data and all the elements. The other side of that coin is something which is a question always raised with AI is how do we trust it? Almost that we're to the point that AI has to be held to a much higher level than even humans make mistakes all the time. I can give you bad advice because I don't know it yet, right? So are we expecting much more of AI? 
I mean, here's the thing. If you think you're going to be able to detect AI, you won't. It'll get good enough that you can't detect it. And if you think you can get AI to detect AI, newsflash, you won't. That's been so, already, hasn't it? That the AI detectors fail. <laughs> that's right. That, well, it's cat and mouse game. And the reality is it's like hacking, right? You think you'll ever, ever finish hacking in the world? You'll never catch it. It's a cat and mouse game. Fortunately and unfortunately, AI has the flexibility of being so variable that it is anything. It is always in a fluid state that you cannot nail down. And that's part of, uh, part of the power of AI. When we talk about military environments and use case, because there are things that we can process as people when we're looking at like a multi-service, multi-domain environment, and we're simulating that. We can only perceive certain elements of it, okay? But AI can take that multi-domain, like we talked about earlier, how we have all these different services that are feeding in Hadian and all these different domain systems, take that information that's happening and create horizontal processing where it's not just a vertical slice, like I'm the ground troops, I'm the vehicles, but more about the horizontal line of what are the trends of rain across the entire domain and what is the impact of fuel cost or how does it affect movements when you're looking at all of these things happening? And I'm doing a very simplistic case, but the reason is that fluidity is what allows us to kind of look at the different sources. And that, from my view, is critical when we're trying to enable how they make decisions in the theater, especially in the military for warfighters in the, in the battle space. So consider that when you have AI, that's how you're going to use it that for that fluidity. It strikes me when I, I was talking yesterday to someone who I think they developed, they were sort of an expert in their own graph neural network. And when you we were asked them, so, so how does this work and how, what are the limitations of it? And there was always a degree of uncertainty because they're saying, well, I think this is what it will do. But because I didn't actually program the whole thing, it's just learned. I actually don't know what it's capable of. I have an idea, but the only way I know is by trying it. Yeah, that's because the reason is that if you're thinking about it, it is a trained environment. This isn't a logical environment. You're training it with a, look, if we had the brains of deep thought and we know the answer is 42, you know, we would be able to understand, <laughs> like if you remember from Douglas Adams, right? If you calculate every grain yeah. of sand in the sandstorm in real time, if we could understand and comprehend every single data point in a data source and how the outcome of that relates to others in a relationship, then we would understand and be able to explain learned models down to the kind of precision. But we can't, or we could, but it would be a lifetime to understand it, which is not worth it. Let's face it, we need to upgrade the compute power for that. We're not that good at that level. <laughs> you, you end up rebuilding the computer to ask the right question. That's right. That's right. So now we have to live in a world of abstract where we know we can't process that. And so the answer will be, I don't know. It's not that I can't know. It's just, I won't be able to know in a time interval. That's enough to answer your question in a meaningful way. I can give you an estimation. And so that person who is the self-made expert, they're right. They won't know. They couldn't know. And if they did, boy, that would be a waste of their talent. Hmm. I think with all automation, I mean, my background is aerospace engineering, right? So in aerospace, how do we deal with that? We don't truly know what the autopilot does, but what we do is we have we have tolerance. We have tolerances, but we also get three of them to agree yeah. to with each other. You know, that's the that's one funny. one strategy. And I, I've heard that mentioned that actually what you need to do is layer these things because actually they're relatively cheap to get stood up. If you yes. get them to sort of agree on converge in a zone, you know, zone of possible agreement, then at least you've got something that says, well, they can't all be wrong. Or yeah, at least likely to all be wrong. That's when you're talking about using you know, agent models with learning models, and you're able to process something at a larger scale as a result of something that you've done. So the law of averages is still wonderful because I can get close enough to what I'm trying to get to. 
So, I mean, in terms of where we're going with defense tech, I don't think I could have predicted we're having this conversation. I, I think I could have had this conversation if it was a science fi- about science fiction novel, if it was about <laughs> Asimov or something, or Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams was talking about probability drives and stuff. Absolutely. So the fact that this is a real problem and not a hypothetical, where do we go from here? <laughs> well, where do we go from here? We really take a look at what we want to accomplish. You know, the, the, the best part about having such a fluid tool is that you've got to understand what are you trying to solve? In a lot of cases, you don't know what you're looking to solve, but AI isn't just about how do I create the answers? It's also about how do I create the questions? There are a lot of things that we'll learn and understand, but we don't have to have all the answers and they don't need to be given to us. We also needed to ask new questions and that's an important part of it. So yeah, the traditional telling the answer, how about teach me to fish? Anyone that's used ChatGPT or MidJourney will know that it's not about trying to work out what the answer is. It's writing the right prompt. The better you are yeah. writing the prompt, the better the result you get. I had to do a cool thing the other day where I fed it my, my CV, I fed it my LinkedIn, I fed it some of the social parts, and I said, tell me about myself. Tell me about what I'm doing. Just, you know, what is really AI? <laughs> Man, that thing wrote it. it. It it wrote some really, really cool stuff. And I was like, what are some of the fun things that I might enjoy doing? <laughs> you know, And from a, like, how do I take all my professional experience uh, that I've done and what's something fun that I can do with it that's meaningful, that it can help people, help the world as a whole. And that's a really cool insight. A lot of the stuff was close to what I'd already thought about, but there were a few things that were outside of those degrees um, that I thought, that's actually kind of cool. Then the other question is, you know, I posed, which was, you know, you know, what should I be thinking of and what should I be asking? And it gave me more things to travel. It's a rabbit hole without a doubt. Wow. Wow. That is crazy thinking about where we could go with that. It's sort of, sort of made my head hurt, but that, that's probably a good thing and a good a sign of a good a good discussion. I also like how we've related ex- you know, complex LLM chatbots, whatever you want to call them, into a military you know, squad average. You know, as an infantry section, you're, you're, you patrol down a, you know, you go a kilometer, you all count your paces, and then you have to work out the squad average of where, how far you think you've traveled. And I think it sounds like that. We're bringing back a very basic military skill set or tool and laying it on something quite complex, which I quite like. Keep it simple, stupid, as they say. And I also like the fact that it sounds like it's going in a very more creative direction. And compared to that logical process, which again, I, I was never going to be a very good programmer, but I definitely can ask creative questions, as, as Colin will, will attest to. I'm feeling so much more empowered as an individual because of this technology. We've gone, we've, I love this, this interview is brilliant. We've gone to so many different topics. I'm enjoying that. I've, I've got one final question here, but, but it's going to move on. So is anything anyone wants to kind of riff on from that? Well, consider one thing. I'll just kind of answer your point. People are worried about where they're going to be employed and is it going to take over their job? But the reality is that those that are logical will still be able to build the underlying systems as the constructors. And those that are creatives and abstracts will be able to contribute more than they ever thought they did. They just have to understand that there's a new tool in their hand and not be afraid to wield it. The power will be in the creatives and the thinkers. And so learn, understand, and start asking great questions. Love it. And from a military perspective, we've got to start getting some senior officers to start using this technology as well and start using the asking the questions and not being as scared to embrace new technologies because if we're not using it, I guarantee that our uh, adversaries are already exploring this kind of tech. Well, if they're not, the problem is if they're only asking the people around them and they're not actually asking the questions to the technology, they're already at a loss. That's the funny thing about it. If you're an officer, my suggestion is have those around you that report to you, help provide the technology, 
Learn to just spend a little time, play with it. Look at how it engages with you so that you can better inform them. Don't stay an arm's distance away. You've got to understand the tool that you're using or you will wield it improperly. This is actually about a different way we interact with computers. So, in the, you know, if you think about a mouse and a keyboard, they're pretty clunky. Before that, we had command line. Before that, we had switches and punch cards, right? They're all terrible ways to interact with a computer. But now what we're going to do is we're going to ask it a series of questions and feed it information, which is already yeah. being done. And, yeah, people are creating virtual environments just by talking to their computer. Ooh, uh, I thought Star Trek was still far off. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was that was the greatest episode. I think it was uh, he picks up the he picks up the mouse. He picks up the and mouse. Goes, computer. Computer. What's wrong with this thing? And it was like because because what he does is he, he tries to talk to it the computer and then yes. the lady from the eighties says no you need to use the mouse so you yeah <laughs> oh I get it I've got to talk to them it's it's classic but yeah and I'm reading a lot of Ian M Banks at the moment and and the half of the story is about this guy chatting to a robot right and as he wants to say it was like we're talking to a robot to try and make sense of the world and that's your point we've got to get used to that I mean. I don't feel comfortable talking to Siri. Find it yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> you, you have to because, I mean, the funny thing is, if you look at what the stuff that, you know, global CTO, global CTO, I'm looking at it from a lot of different perspectives on how we do the stuff inside of simulation, but I'm looking at all the places on how we're applying AI and how it can be applied. And the funny thing about it is that we're, we're looking at things at a more abstract level to be able to build a lot of these pieces where they're usable. So... Keep in mind that I've got this craziness where I'm looking at all this data, I'm looking at all this simulation, I'm going, boy, there is a feedback loop that can be put in here and just throw this entire thing on its ear in a good way. And to me, it's a very powerful, abstract instrument. And so I have to change my thinking at the same time. I have to stop thinking about code and logic and think about it from creative attack angle and how it will create uh, an imbalance just from changing a term you know, one word. Now words are power. Think about that. They always have been with humans, but now you're talking about something at a much larger scale. I mean, they're already saying that writing code will be something of the past and actually we're just chatting to one of our engineers. And now, you know, in the past 18 months, they write less code now. They deliver more, but they write less code. Well, again, it goes back to the creatives. Being more creative, AI is still maturing on writing code. It's great at boilerplate, but you still got to refine it quite a bit. But you're right. It will keep getting better and better because there's so much data. There's so much code out there. Um, the training on that is insane. And you're talking about trillions of lines of code. You can feed this thing. Okay, well, thank you very much for that conversation. These interviews, when it feels like he's just chatting to someone down the pub about technology and getting excited about it together, I think is really hitting the nail on the head for the tone we're trying to achieve. So thank you for that, Royal. My last question, and it is a tough one, and you know, no one's going to hold you to this at all, but if you had to wave your magic wand or we could jump ahead five or 10 years in the military sphere when it comes to this type of technology, and specifically, let's, let's take application of Hadian or Hadian type technology, how do you think things are going to change? Uh, and what could it look like for a junior officer, junior NCO uh, that's the difference from now? Uh, the difference here is that they'll be able to create scenarios that otherwise would have devastating effects if they occurred in real life. So imagine simulating a, a large scale attack. Well, you know, when it happens, it's already happening and the information is going to be there, but being able to simulate that in a larger scale and the ramifications of what happens in each economy, what happens in the different countries, what happens in the political environment, what happens, not just from these number of troops, but 
being able to understand that taking this angle of approach is going to have this kind of resource loss, political capital, and we'll have a lot of these pieces that go along with it. And then being able to stop, rewind, and modify a certain point and refine it. But I don't mean by hand, because that's one of the things that like we can do now. Today, I can run the theater, I can do that, I can stop it and go, mm, maybe I want the tank to make a right-hand turn instead of a left. Let's see what happens when we play the rest of the simulation out. But being able to have AI be able to say, okay, what is my best chess move? How can I, in this environment, this is my outcome. I want to lose the least number of people. I want to have the most number of resources to, to be not damaged. I want to consume the least amount. Of, I want to take the least amount of time. There are a lot of knobs that we will need to turn and they will need to modify and balance each other. But being able to construct the environment, like we write a paper and have it produce that environment, simulate it, produce the outcome, and be able to do that analysis and adjust. And because, I mean, the, the reality is if we take a look, you know, in the military space, that's the end game. How do I get the best outcome with the least amount of resource, you know, destroyed or taken off the field? And how do I do this in a meaningful way that allows me to move to my next objective? So really, you know, if I take a look at this environment with, the, with you know, military metaverse, where they're able to share the different theater environments with the expertise that's done in each one, and have that form of automation to make those better decisions quickly, that allows the military to better inform what the communication will be at the political level. It allows information, remember, change the environment, change the sentiment, and change the outcome. And we very much rely on communication, and we always will, as long as we don't become beholden to it. It is our obligation to interpret and to act, not just follow. Yeah, really coherent. And obviously, you know, from I could see how the value would, uh, strategic level would bring that value. But I was actually thinking, again, because I never achieved a lofty rank in the military. So uh, I was thinking like how even at the lowest level, your private soldiers, riflemen, or even a tank gunner that fires around into a window that may create collateral damage, but then be able to like, track that back and understand the second, third, fourth order effects and how that plays into the wider ecosystem really will make every single shot and every single event, even at a granular level, relevant and more relatable. And I can definitely see that just from from both both sides of the spectrum there as well. Yeah, well, it's a refinement. Um, you're talking about battlefield refinement, and that happens at all levels. So the scale I was talking about from uh, was from, of course, a much larger scale, but everything that rolls up to the effectiveness of what that large scale is starts at the data points. Yeah. You know, how you shoot, where you shoot, why you shoot, you know, why you move into a position, what is a favorable, favorable, unfavorable, that's going to have impact because if you find out that after the simulation that those troops were eliminated and that means that that's not there to protect it, you've got to create other forces. That has a major impact that has a rippling effect. Kind of the the old concept of a beating of a butterfly wing and an AI in these large scale simulation environments, those things are truly, they will happen. But gaining the insight ahead of time of what's possible, you can now use the point we brought up earlier, which is the law of averages to make the best educated decision. And that's really what we want to accomplish is making the best educated decision because nothing is definitive. Okay. Well, it looks like we've uh, come to the end of this chat. Thank you again. If people have been inspired by this conversation or just want to really dig into it and, and learn a bit more about yourself, Hadian, and the direction of this kind of technology. Is there any way you'd want to direct them to? Yeah, I think if you want to learn a lot more about, you know, what we're up to and what we're doing, you can find us. We'll be at uh, ITSEC in Orlando next week, I think the week of the 27th. We'll be demonstrating some pretty wild stuff, uh, showing a domain environment in mass scale uh, with kind of a multi-domain, multi-service system running. So we'll have both air, sea, and land forces all operating in one environment simulated. 
with AI. And also you can get, you can learn a lot more. Uh, if you go to Hadian.com, there's a defense area. You can learn about the different organizations we're working with, like BAE and the British government, and how we're approaching this from a defense side. And if you're interested about how it's being applied also in the civilian side, because you'll find out that a lot of times games tend to influence new technologies, <clears throat> those new technologies wind up finding their way over to defense. You can also learn more about how we're doing these in large scale with Web3, NFT, and social environments. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Excellent. Thank you so much as well. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, another interview that I thoroughly enjoyed. Although I've got to say, when we were chatting to Royal off air, uh, preparing for the interview, and he gave us his background and experience, I've got to admit, I was pretty intimidated by like, how, <laughs> how are you going to draw on this guy's experience, you know, well enough? It's so much. It's like, how do we focus in on what we want to talk about? But I hope well, we well, especially you know, you're poking the bear here, right, as well. So you're giving a deliberately challenging question to get a response, and I think he did admirably and. I think the thing that sort of keeps me up at night is there's so much going on, there's so much change. And even we talk about having to up our game. I don't think we're upping our game enough. This stuff's going to overtake us so rapidly. I think we're losing the battle to keep up with tech. Yeah, 100%. And that was when I was talking to, was it Rory henderson Beg a couple of episodes back, and talk about how forward-leaning defence organisation would not be looking to try and keep up with defence, but actually go, right, well, let's try and aim off to try and get ahead of it because invariably if you try and get ahead of it you'll probably might if you're lucky keep up yeah you might just about keep up (laughs) but either way you know that it's better than being behind with technology especially when we're talking about you know life and death you know war-based decisions where our adversaries are are looking to continually get one up on us right yeah and and you know there's some good chats about oh we've got to use this stuff responsibly and stuff but as you say our adversaries may not what are you going to do if someone else uses technology against you well you haven't got much choice but there's the next episode we've got next couple of episodes we've got a great interview with someone who actually covers the, the challenges of AI and the risks going forward as well so that, I think that feeds quite nicely into that yeah it's always going to come back to us so thanks again to Raul and Hadeen for, for getting us going thanks for keeping Tom overworked um, <laughs> and we'll move on to introduce Andy and Marty to give us a bit of heads up on what's happening next week in Orlando yeah you lucky people if you're going enjoy enjoy the sun enjoy the bars Enjoy the networking, enjoy the learning about new technology, and I'll hear all about it when you come back. <laughs> I am very pleased to be able to introduce two, well, well, certainly one old friend and one new friend, but two people now from MS&T. Marty Kalchek, who's the editor of MS&T, and Annie Fawkes, who obviously our listeners will, will know of old from season one. Both come on to tell us a bit more about what's going on next week, which is a big deal, Tom, isn't it? It is a big deal. I'm back, Andy. Welcome. As in, back by popular demand, I must say. I'm delighted to be back. Good to be back again and reminds me of the good old days. <laughs> so for those listening, this episode is all about giving that 15 minute, all you need to know, what you should know about going to IITSEC. So maybe you're not going, you've got FOMO, and you want to know what you're missing out on, or you are going and maybe you've downloaded this prior to a flight and you've got that kind of 15 minute update and then going on to the interview a little bit later on. So I'm really glad that you've both given us your time, your wisdom and experience experience of multiple it sex i it sex going forward pleasure so where should we start should we do, do a very quick top level kind of what is i it sec and and then we move move into breaking that down to conference versus event and, and pros and cons of that i'm ha- happy to start off without going into uh, a full blow by blow history of i it sec but i i think in one shape or form it's been around actually into the 60s i think it started yeah. with the u.s navy wanting to look at training technologies and then it's sort of morphed over the ages and uh, over the years into 
into what it is now, which is a truly international, truly armed services and industry and academia event. And I think for for someone who hasn't been before, it's split essentially between two things. There's a, there's a huge exhibition where industry and also military bodies show off what they're up to, what they're doing. And also there's a, a, a conference that runs alongside. And there's certainly, if you if you research in this area, you'll see lots of IETSEC papers over the years of, of combat. So it does try to sort of push the boundaries of knowledge in this area, as well as obviously uh, showing what's on sale right now, so to speak. Would that be fair enough, Marty? Fair enough. Uh, Andy, uh, I think what I've found very, very interesting about uh, the ITSIC over the last maybe five to 10 years is the way it's uh, still kept a focus on simulation and training, but yet it's kind of taken a few off-ramps, as I'll call it, maybe outside of uh, traditional military simulation and training. Going on to cover some of the adjacent spaces, uh, for instance, uh, medical, engineering, and things like that. Still very, very closely aligned with the military, but again, the focus is there. So again, just kind of a snapshot of uh, what's on the mind of uh, some of the exhibitors that are there, some of the customers that are there, the delegates. So yeah, I think you were right on, Andy. Thank you, Marty. I think for those who don't go, like myself, I will say I did go 15 years in a row. So I've certainly done my time. I did that both as MOD, uh, UK Ministry of Defence, and as industry. So I think you do get two different perspectives from that. And certainly, I think more on the government side, it's traditionally because a lot of people go. I wouldn't say everyone goes, but a lot of people go. And therefore, it's a good place to meet. So there are a lot, I would say to someone who's not going, you do, sorry, who is going, who needs to think about what your priorities are. Because if it is just to meet people, are you going to find time to go on the exhibition and not just for the big companies, but the smaller ones. And also, if you have paid for the uh, conference as well, you know, are you going to make time for the conference? Are you going to make sure you program it in and not keep it in your diary? Because the time will go really quickly and you'll be really busy and get really tired because it's a huge space you're walking up and down. Yeah, yeah. guilty of that. Last, the two times that I've been, <laughs> I was too busy in the trenches making sure the thing that I was demoing didn't fall over. I didn't get an opportunity to actually really take advantage of it. So as it Marty, was it Andy, who should I talk to about getting give a kind of a top level overview of, of some of the key keynotes to go and look at or key events to go and uh, look at uh, for this ITSEC uh, 2023? Sure. You know, it's interesting. Last year, the focus was on the metaverse. This year, the conference uh, is very, very focused, at least at the um, meeting room level at the presentation level on AI and 5G. Beyond that, that's obviously trickling down into uh, what some of the exhibitors, what some of the military teams are going to have on the conference floor. Again, you can see that with some of the uh, press releases that we've had at um, www.haldale.com. For instance, uh, Bohemia Interactive Simulations has noted that they're VBS4, state-of-the-art autonomous capability will be on display. And again, we've seen hints of what some of the other exhibitors are going to be having in terms of AI. Andy, I don't know if you have any other uh, key areas that you've picked up, uh, areas of interest. I'll defer to you before I can continue. I mean, for me, and I, you know, I, I first went in the year 2000. <laughs> so I, I, for me, I think it's always seeing who are the new entrants who are yeah. coming in. I guess if you haven't been before, it's difficult to speak. To say that, but new companies, obviously, there are the big primes that you would expect to be there. 
and you know who who they are. Uh, you know the really massive companies, but also it's really interesting, perhaps to no offence to big companies, is to look for the innovation of those small companies. But you've got to make any, you know you've got to t- spend the time to go to those small companies that tend to be maybe more around the edges. But I think it's not just new entrants and say defence companies, uh, because I'll probably just change what I've said in the sense because there are actually big companies there who are traditionally non-defence. So there are certain companies that do games engines, for example, that. Yeah. Are yep. there. I think uh, there's a whole host of XR companies, some of which I don't think have exhibited there before. So, and I think there has been that kind of rush from other companies, say in the gaming or entertainment, filmmaking, to see opportunities in defence. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how how they're faring on the show floor. Andy, I think some of the uh, most beneficial discussions I've had at the ITSA could been with, uh, and I think you've alluded to this, some of the uh, what I'll call the second and third tier companies, uh, obviously outside of the OEMs. Uh, something that I found very interesting for those that are going to be there is to maybe grab uh, what I'll call an ecosystem map. Uh, I don't care if you want to go to a uh, you know supplier of a game engine, a supplier of um, uh, XR content or whatever, but uh, you know it's kind of interesting to uh, grab an ecosystem map, find out the partnerships that are happening out there, find out some of the trends. And uh, again, I think it's a great value just to kind of get a glimpse from that perspective on actually uh, what's out there. From my experience, it's also important to really try and learn as much as you you can during the week and speak to as many different people as you can, because you have best intentions. You say, oh, I'll take that brochure away, a leaflet, and you might read it on the aircraft flying back or whatever right and really do you ever look at it again i don't know but it is a i guess is a lot of it is about building and maintaining relationships with people i mean there's no easy way of doing this although i i think you know it's like a best laid plan it's also important to perhaps encourage that sort of serendipitous situation where you meet people that you didn't expect to or saw a company that you didn't expect to meet when i went i'm not saying i was important but it tended to be like I had a whole calendar full of events I had to go to anyway. So there was very little time to make flights or indipitous. So if you are important, try and make some time in your diary to just have a wander around. And I'll say, if you've got time, obviously try the conference as well. Andy, I don't know if we've mentioned this, but maybe just to back up a little bit, just to kind of, again, frame things for some that are going to be there. They have four days. If I'm recalling correctly, uh, I think the main events, the exhibition hall, will be open uh, Monday afternoon of next week. Going to be closing mid or early afternoon on that Thursday, but don't get lulled by that. Uh, There's still a heck of a lot of activity on the conference floor, up in the meeting rooms. Uh, Something I'm going to try to do again this year, Andy, if I can do it, is um, listen to some of the uh, service and industry senior leaders talk at the... um, Again, the leadership forums that they have featuring Army, Navy, Air Force, and others. So once in a while, you'll get a glimpse or a key insight from hearing uh, some of the senior bosses talk. But anyway, I'm going to try to make time again this year for that. That's a great call, yeah, to, to try and get to the keynotes at, at the beginning. Uh, I think the other thing I wanted to just talk about briefly is the conference itself. So this year's theme is Sustaining a Global Force in a Digital World. So you expect the papers to to focus on that, ideally. So that it's about how humans or will operate in our more digital world, but also how digital technologies can support global military readiness. So I think wow. uh, that, that's the theme this year. 
it's interesting. I think also, obviously, there's things that happened since I guess all those papers were selected, like the conflict in uh, Israel-Palestine at the moment, and obviously Ukraine is still there. So yeah. whether current operations, let's say, or current conflict will maybe change some of the discussions. I mean, I can't help but make a comment there that that this is a, a really interesting time because I know when those papers would have been submitted and the requests put out, yeah. and certainly we've seen a lot of the issues raised, the area of interest really has changed in the last 12 months yeah. in terms of what we should be looking at for industry and technology to address, hasn't it? Absolutely, Colin. I mean, technology, I mean, everyone, well, not everyone, but lots of people say technology is moving fast, but I think it's moving faster and you know, how many releases of XR headsets are there just in this last year? I mean, although I don't see Meta there. Actually, I just want to talk about AI for a second, just as amusing. I use the latest chat GPT-4 to count how many exhibitors there are because there is an ex- exhibitor list. And it. I just typed in, look look at this webpage and count the number of exhibitors. Anyway, long story short, it came up with 515. Now, some of those might be duplicates, but isn't that truly amazing <laughs> that you can... If it's around that figure, it's more than last year. I've got, I've got the stats in front of me from last year. So exhibits of visitor yeah. numbers around about 5,700. Conference attendees, 4,800. Ex- uh, exhibit personnel, 7,000. International visitors, 1,900 from 61 countries. And exhibiting companies, 452. So there you go. Yeah, so if ChatGPT is, is, is within 10%, uh, I guess it's it possibly is a bit more than last year. But they don't seem to publish that until after the event. And just a quick cursory glance for the website. Some of the things to look forward to is the serious games competition. We yeah. talked about the emerging medical simulations, but again, it's great that we're cross-pollinating between industries. And that's absolutely crucial this day and age. The military doesn't have all the right answers. We've got to make sure we're looking outside of that. There's a next big thing forum. Again, for people who are looking for those inspirations of how to use next technologies coming out, maybe it's worth looking at that forum going forward and a cyber pavilion, which I think is an area that is under-engaged with within this space. So it's nice to see that the pavilion's getting, they're getting their own special place to go and be cybery together <laughs> and if you can't go and you want to know about the next big big thing then please uh, read midling holding sorry military simulation of training and obviously listen to this podcast to know about the next thing that's seamless andy seamless <laughs> absolutely right in terms of looking at those events that somewhat different slightly off the normal military simulation and training but to Every- pick up on on what you've been saying andy i think it's some excellent advice you know obviously given after years of having to trodden those halls for you know back and forward but it's so it's so big and there's so much there i think you've got to treat it like a military operation you've got to plan it well yes Um, and the other thing that's great that i was thinking uh, by the way none of this advice i'm going to follow myself so (laughs) (laughs) adaptable plan Um, colin yeah but but definitely plan it but also there's a wealth of those technical brains that you can actually go and talk to so yeah there's marketing, there's advertising, and there's people sort of trying to show off what they do. But actually, when you go to those stands, you can pe- speak to people who really have done it, yeah. um, ask them. They'll tend to be engineers, and they can't help but tell the truth, which is a great thing. So if you really want to find the ground truth, it's very revealing if you've That's got the so true. diligence. <laughs> right, right. Great advice. Okay, so as we're coming to the end of this little IETSEC update, um, is there anything left, any last little bits of advice or wisdom that you guys want to bestow upon listeners before we close this out? 
No, I, I think it's extremely valuable to go to the military stands. So uh, for those who don't know, particularly the US, but they will have their own stands, like say the US Navy or the US Army, and they will, they will be showing off the products that probably they've paid for, but also what they're doing internally. And also, you obviously, you see what customers, heaven forbid, we actually speak to customers. <laughs> but, you know, it's yeah. really good to go to the customer and see what they want. And it isn't just... US, there may be, I'm, I'm sure there'll be other nations there, but also uh, NATO, they n- normally have a big stand there showing what they're doing and their programs of work. So you know, I, I think it's I, really I, valuable to do that. I saw that last year, Andy. I thought that was really good. Again, an example of where the Americans do things very well, where they have, hey, this is the customer, this is the end user, and these are the guys that built it who are part of industry. And so you talk to a range of people and you, again, you get to the ground truth of this stuff and understand right how it's used, not necessarily the speeds, the speeds of this thing. So, yeah. I think another thing you could do if you aren't able to obviously see everything is to keep track of the PR that's going on around the show. Because uh, although you might have a view on PR, it actually literally says what the companies are going to show off, be showing off. So that might right. be helpful in terms of looking at their social media or looking at the Emerson Team newsletter, of course, where we do push out the PR that companies are pushing out. And it also may say, you know, when they have special events, because particularly the bigger companies, they will, they may have special events through the week. And, you know, it might be a chance to speak to the CEO or whoever. Exactly. So, yeah. Perfect. So thank you very much for coming along and giving us a, an intro. Uh, safe travels to all those that are attending and we'll see you on the other side.